everyone. Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. What's going on in health and wellness this week? We've got the latest info and tips to help you take care of your body, your brain, and your well-being. Have you heard about a polio-like illness that sickened more than 380 people in the U.S., mostly children? It's a condition called acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM, and it can make it hard to use certain muscles. For instance, you might have sudden weakness in your arms or legs, or problems swallowing or drooping eyelids. It's definitely scary, but it's rare. And it's also not new. AFM has been around for a few years, but it seems to be happening more often this year. So what should you watch for, and when should you call a doctor? Dr. Kathleen Dooling, medical officer at the CDC and the incident manager for the acute flaccid myelitis response, is here to talk with us about this story. Hi, Dr. Dooling. Hello. Let's start off by describing what exactly is this illness and how rare is it? Acute flaccid myelitis, also known as AFM, is characterized by the sudden onset of weakness in one or more limbs. This condition is mostly uh, affecting children, and we first started noticing it in 2014 and have been following it ever since. The symptoms, most importantly, are that weakness that starts very suddenly and may affect one limb or more, may affect all four limbs. Sometimes this illness is preceded by a fever or some symptoms of cough or cold that happen several days beforehand. And then it's really that characteristic weakness that separates it from your average cough and cold this season. So the symptoms on their face value are somewhat similar to polio. It involves a weakness, a somewhat floppy weakness in one or more limbs. But we know that this is not poliovirus. In the hundreds of cases that we've tested so far who have AFM, none of them have been shown to be positive for poliovirus. How is the CDC investigation going so far? Are there any clues about what's behind these cases? The CDC is working very closely with our partners in state and local health departments to follow up on each and every case of acute flaccid myelitis. We not only get information about the case itself, but we also follow up to get specimens or samples from the ill person so we can do a battery of testing here at CDC. While so far we haven't found any consistent cause of AFM, we are looking very closely and working very hard hard to understand what's causing this illness. We're still keeping a very open mind to look at all possibilities of what could be causing acute flaccid myelitis. There are a few things that we know can cause an illness that results in acute flaccid myelitis. A few of those things are polio itself, which we have ruled out in the cases so far. Another possibility are viruses like West Nile virus. So we're looking very closely for that as a potential cause. In addition, we know that a certain class of viruses called enteroviruses sometimes can result in the type of weakness that we're seeing in children. So we're testing all specimens uh, for those viruses as well. This is not a new illness, correct? This is something that's been around for a while? We first noticed this constellation of symptoms that we have termed acute flaccid myelitis in 2014. And we've noticed since then that every second year we see a spike in those cases. And now in 2018, we're observing the same increase in cases. 
Interesting. So it's just more people, which is why there's a little bit more of a cause for alarm in the last couple of weeks. That's that's certainly why we're following this situation very closely. What are the signs of AFM and when should someone call their doctor, whether they have the symptoms themselves or if they notice them in their child? Acute flaccid myelitis is a condition that we've mostly observed in children so far, but we have had adult cases reported as well. So our advice to parents is that if you notice the sudden onset of weakness in one or more of your child's arms or legs, that you consult your healthcare provider right away. Is there a pattern geographically? Thus far, we haven't noticed any strong clustering patterns across the U.S. This uh, condition has been noted in in multiple states all over the country. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And is there a treatment for AFM or how often do people recover from this? Because we don't yet know a specific cause of acute flaccid myelitis, there's no one specific treatment. For people who have sought care, most of them have been hospitalized and each individual will be treated with supportive care within that care team that's looking after them. In terms of recovery, so far we've seen a really a broad spectrum of what's possible after an acute flaccid myelitis infection. Some children walk out of the hospital or they're strength fully restored, but for some they continue to have problems and will require ongoing care and rehabilitation. And there's a whole spectrum of children that end up somewhere in between those two extremes. So what are some of the things that a person could do to prevent AFM or to just lower their risk for getting it? Is it possible to say that thus far? Once again, because we don't know the specific cause, it's difficult to be specific about prevention measures. But what we can say is for the few things that we know cause AFM, like poliovirus in general or uh, West Nile virus, We recommend that, for one, you stay up to date on immunizations, and second, that you make sure your children wear mosquito repellent anytime they're outdoors and likely to come in contact with mosquitoes. And in general, a great message to stay healthy is to make sure you and your children wash your hands frequently. While we don't know specifically if this is going to prevent acute flaccid myelitis, it's an important way to stay healthy and prevent the spread of germs. Certainly. And... There are obviously a lot of parents out here who are somewhat alarmed by the possibility that their child could have this condition. What are some of the things that you would say to parents who are feeling those fears right now? It's absolutely normal to feel those fears. Having a child myself, I know that anything that could cause our children to become ill is extremely concerning for parents. But I would add to that, while acute flaccid myelitis is a serious condition, it's also a very rare condition. Since we first started tracking this condition in 2014, on average, it affects less than one in a million children since that time. Do be on the lookout, but recognize this is still a very rare condition. All right. Dr. Dooling, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Alzheimer's disease is one of the conditions people fear most that they'll get. And while Alzheimer's does become more common as you get older, it's not a normal part of aging. There are steps you can take, starting today, that make you less likely to get Alzheimer's later on. And no, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to do a lot more crossword puzzles. So, what helps? With Alzheimer's Awareness Month right around the corner, we're talking about this today with Lisa Genova, a neuroscientist and author of books including the best-selling novel Still Alice. 
Lisa's TED Talk, What You Can Do to Prevent Alzheimer's, has been viewed more than three million times. Dr. Genova, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let's start with what's normal for changes in thinking and memory with age and what's not normal. As we age, our processing time slows, and we do have some more memory issues than we did in our 20s. So, for example, we've all had that tip of the tongue moment, like, oh, what's his name? The average 25-year-old has three to four of those a week. We do experience more as we get older. So in your 50s, you might experience five to six a week. But that's a normal part of normal aging. I would actually argue that a lot of these sort of typical memory glitches that people run into daily might not even involve our memories because we're so busy, busy, busy. We might not be actually paying attention where we put our keys, for example, in the first place. It becomes something else when we eventually find our keys in a strange place, like the microwave or the refrigerator, or we find the keys and we have this moment where we can't remember what these are for. So that's different, and that might be due to something like Alzheimer's. And so the symptom of Alzheimer's called dementia can be caused by lots of things that are treatable, like a B12 deficiency or poor sleep and physicians will want to get to the bottom of what's the cause of your memory problems. So it may not even be Alzheimer's. That makes sense. And so you mentioned a a few things that can lead to Alzheimer's. What does the research show about whether you can prevent this condition overall? For 95% of Alzheimer's, it's caused by a combination of genes and environment. You've inherited your genes from mom and dad, and some of those will increase your risk of Alzheimer's. Some of them might actually be protective against Alzheimer's, but for 95% of us, those genes are not going to cause Alzheimer's. So then the rest of what contributes to Alzheimer's is how we live. And you can think of your brain health as a lot like heart health. In fact, the things that are good for your heart are actually shown to help decrease your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's. So for example, we know that diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, smoking, and obesity all significantly increase your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's. There's been some fantastic studies recently that demonstrate that Mediterranean diet can reduce your risk of Alzheimer's by a third. We know that exercise, and in particular aerobic exercise, clears away some of the the Alzheimer's contributing proteins called amyloid beta. It clears away these um, the sort of bad guys in this disease better than any pharmaceutical we've discovered so far. And again, exercise studies and people have shown that there's a significant reduced risk of Alzheimer's in people who are exercising versus people who are sedentary. We also know, and this was a big one for me, sleep contributes to whether or not we're going to get Alzheimer's in the future. It turns out that during slow wave deep sleep, We have these cells in our brain called glial cells. They're like our brain's janitors. They sweep up all the metabolic debris and sort of trash that's accumulated in your brain during the business of being awake. And one of the things that clears away is that amyloid beta, that bad guy that really triggers the the beginning of this disease. And so if you don't get enough sleep, if you're skimping on your sleep and not getting enough slow-wave deep sleep, you don't give those glial cells, those janitors, enough time to do their job. So you're beating up your likelihood of getting to Alzheimer's. 
sleep, Mediterranean diet, exercise, these are all things we sort of know are really good for our heart. Turns out it's also really good for keeping Alzheimer's away. And I know you've talked about this as sort of a like a seesaw of risk factors. Unless you're part of the, the rare few who have familial early onset Alzheimer's, this is Alzheimer's that begins in your 40s, 50s, it runs in your family, so a lot of people in your family get this. Only 5% of folks have that kind of Alzheimer's. For the rest of us, the genes you inherit are not going to give you Alzheimer's. So you might have heard of a gene called APOE4, and that increases your risk of getting Alzheimer's significantly. You can get a copy of APOE4 from your mom and your dad and still never get Alzheimer's. So the way we live really does have a powerful impact on whether or not it tips the scale. We also know that that things like stress can contribute to, to memory problems and exacerbate dementia. We know that learning new things can help you dance around any Alzheimer's pathology that you might have. The idea of, of learning new things creates what we call a cognitive reserve. You get literally have a bigger brain to work with. You have more neural connections. So even if some get compromised by this disease, you might be able to, again, de detour that wreckage. So you mentioned at the, at the top of this segment about, you know, maybe it's not doing crossword puzzles. I don't know who started this idea that crossword puzzles are going to help prevent Alzheimer's. No. So crossword puzzles are actually mostly retrieving information you already know. And that's not what we're talking about when we want to build an Alzheimer's resistance brain. We really want you to learn new things. So this is going to hear a talk or reading a book, or learning a language, or a new instrument, or staying socially active, because being in conversation, if you're really listening, you're actually learning. So we really want you to stay intellectually engaged. Is there anything that you would say to someone to sort of get them to, you know, sort of calm their fears and feel a little more in control? Yeah, I, I think that our culture has become really comfortable with thinking about heart health. And this is relatively new. I would say 50 years ago, we didn't think about heart health and, you know, people dropped dead of heart attacks without any warning. And now we're pretty comfortable and not so fearful about going to our doctor for our annual exam and we'll get our blood pressure taken, we'll get blood drawn to check our cholesterol levels and we'll see where we are with respect to cardiovascular health. And maybe we go on a statin or maybe we begin more exercise or we modify our diet. And we know that we're doing this to keep our heart healthy so that we're preventing a heart attack. We need to start to think about brain health like we do heart health. And we don't have to be afraid of it. We just have to feed it the right nourishing things. It needs exercise. It needs healthy food, Mediterranean diet, those you know, brightly colored fruits and vegetables and nuts and fish, and it needs sleep. So it's really low-tech basic stuff, but if you think about the control you have and, and the mindfulness you have over your heart health, just extend that to what's above your neck, and you really will make a, a, a difference. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Genova. We really appreciate it. Whether you're heading out to the theaters for the latest horror flick, curling up with a good old-fashioned ghost story, or just reading the calorie count on your favorite chocolate bar, we all love a good scare this time of year. You'd think the last thing we'd want to do is scare ourselves, but we keep coming back for more thrills and chills, don't we? 
We decided to ask WebMD medical editor Dr. Neha Pathak what exactly is going on in our brains and our bodies when someone says boo. Hey, Dr. Pathak. Hi, Carrie. How are you? I'm doing all right. So we all know that feeling, whether you're watching a scary movie or going through a haunted house, whatever it is, there's a physical sensation as well as a mental one that happens when you're scared. Yes, absolutely. And it's really one of these sensations that has been so important for our survival as human beings. The fact that we scare easily and can do something about it, and our brains give us the ability to have these physical changes to run, hide, and fight, it's probably the reason that we've survived for so long. So fear comes in kind of handy sometimes. Absolutely. And fear is also fun in some of the settings that you were talking about because some of the same chemicals that are released when we are scared also play a role when we're excited and happy. So when the thinking part of our brain catches up and realizes, hmm, I'm actually not in trouble right now. I do not need to go anywhere. I'm safe. We can actually enjoy the feelings that we're experiencing. So basically what's happening even before we realize what we're seeing and we can process what is actually going on, a part of our brain deep, 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 deep inside called the amygdala is essentially working as our emotional processing center. So when there is something that is a fearful stimuli or something that we should be scared of, the amygdala starts firing. When it fires, it connects and it signals to a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is a really, really, really important part of our brains because it's really in charge of a lot of the things that our body does that we have no control over. Our breathing rates, our heart rates, a whole bunch of things that we can't control but that get triggered when we're scared. The hypothalamus then sends a signal through the nerves down to the adrenal glands. Now this is where that really popular hormone that we think about, adrenaline, when we think about fear, we think about adrenaline. And that's the hormone that is released by the adrenal glands. And that is really putting gas down on that fight or flight response. Once that's released, we are seeing that our heart rates go up, we're breathing faster, and we're really ready to take action if this is an appropriate response. So if there really were a guy with a chainsaw and a mask in front of you, your body would basically be ready to get up and go. Absolutely. So that's why when we are in the safety of our own home watching a horror movie or in a haunted house where we know we're safe, we are actually able to change that feeling from one of fear to one of excitement and actually enjoy the experience and want more of it. Wow. So some people love it. Some people hate it, but we definitely all know that feeling. Thank you so much, Dr. Pathak. That was really interesting. Thank you so much. And for a closer look at scary things we love and some we love to hate, check out the link in our show notes. When fall arrives, the air gets cool and crisp, and many of your favorite holidays and traditions fill the calendar. But a lot of the treats you might look forward to are not so kind to your waistline. On chilly nights, you may crave hearty dishes like chicken pot pie, but one from the freezer aisle can have more than 1,000 calories. Chili and meaty stews can have as much as 500 calories in a bowl, especially if it's full of fatty beef, sausage, or cheese. 
Now, these comfort foods can be good choices when you do them right. To satisfy your pot pie craving, try roasted chicken with a warm whole wheat roll. Look for a chili or stew recipe with beans, lean meat, vegetables, and spices. And broth based stews and soups are often a healthier choice than creamy, cheesy ones. Now, for sports fans, it wouldn't be fall without tailgating and big game day spreads. But favorites like nachos, pizza, wings, and ribs can really spoil your diet. Try to include veggies and low fat dip in the snack lineup. Also, you can save on calories by filling a plate instead of grazing at the buffet. It's a good way to keep track of how much you're eating. Celebrating Oktoberfest? You'll see plenty of beer and sausages on the menu. Bratwurst typically has about 97 calories in just one ounce. Now, you don't have to totally avoid these foods. Just eat smaller portions and choose light beer over regular. You'll save about 50 calories per 12 ounces. Setting a drink limit for yourself is a good idea, too. And speaking of drinks, it's super easy to gulp down calories in seasonal beverages like pumpkin spice lattes, apple cider, and hot toddies. When you down an 8 ounce homemade hot chocolate, minus the whipped cream, you get 150 calories. The same amount of eggnog has almost 260 calories. If you want to sip something warm, try hot tea or coffee with low fat milk. Halloween treats are fun, but the calorie totals can be downright scary. A caramel apple with nuts can have more than 500 calories. And how many of us can have just one piece of Halloween candy? Avoid temptation by stashing sweets out of sight and satisfying any midday hunger pangs with a piece of fruit or whole grain crackers with low fat cheese. If you crave something sweet, try chewing a piece of sugar free gum and see if that helps. Now, once Halloween is over, we all look forward to Thanksgiving, but the side dishes are notorious calorie and fat bombs. Take mac and cheese. One cup can have three to four hundred calories. A sweet potato casserole can easily have 500 calories per serving, even though a plain roasted sweet potato has just 100. If you serve yourself a cup of mashed potatoes and a quarter cup of gravy, you're looking at close to 300 calories. That doesn't mean you have to turn down your favorites. After all, Thanksgiving is just one day a year. But if you don't want to totally wreck your diet, you have two choices enjoy smaller portions of your favorites or lighten up the recipes using ingredients with less fat and calories. For example, Use low fat cheese and milk to make mac and cheese. Or look for a stuffing recipe with fruits, vegetables, and stock instead of lots of sausage and butter. Don't get me wrong, we're not trying to totally ruin your fall fun. The fact is, all it takes is 100 extra calories per day to gain 10 pounds in one year. The best strategy is to avoid the weight creep altogether. No matter the time of year, keep these tips in mind. Enjoy things in moderation and check your portion sizes. Keep an eye on your alcohol intake. Liquid calories add up without filling you up. Also, eat plenty of vegetables prepared without any added fat or sugar. And use low fat recipes and cooking techniques. And keep candy bowls, extra sweets, and other temptations out of sight. Okay, here's our tweak of the week take some time to look at cute photos. Seriously, it just might help you concentrate. One study found that people who took a break from tasks to look at cute pictures of puppies and kittens were more focused and attentive to their work afterward. Who knew those puppy cams or cats of Instagram might actually make you more productive? Thanks for listening to Health Now this week. Take a minute to rate and review the podcast, it helps other people find out about the show. 
And don't forget, WebMD has tons of great content on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now.